Next, I'd like to welcome on debut author Casey McQuiston, who will be talking about her new book, Red, White, and Royal Blue, a comedic and romantic romp about what happens when America's first son falls in love with the Prince of Wales. Hey, Casey, how's it going today? I'm doing great. Just uh, soaking it in in Austin, having a great time. How are you? I'm doing doing fantastic. It's a beautiful day here in New Orleans, and I'm sure it's the same over in Austin territory. Yeah, yeah. It's a cool 90 degrees, but uh, perfect swimming weather, so I'm having a great time. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, I know this is your first time down south in a while. How's it feel to be back? Yeah, it feels amazing. I mean, I'm not from Texas, but this really does feel like my homecoming stop on tour because, you know, I haven't been back since probably about six months now since I've been back down south because I live in Colorado now. And yeah, it's wonderful. You know, the minute I got off the plane, everything I loved about Texas and about the South came rushing back to me. And I was like, oh, this is why I lived here for so long. <laughs> yeah. So everybody's, everyone's friendly. The food is amazing. I've already had Whataburger twice. You know, I'm living the dream. No, I love that. Um, I kind of bring that up in part because uh, a main part of your book, uh, Red, White, and Royal Blue, is that it deals with a first family, the president who is from the South, from Texas, I believe, right? Yeah, that's correct. I'm interested to know about your relationship with, like, the word Southern and, and what that means to you, and then, you know, how you express that in your book. Yeah, um, I mean, I feel like I kind of, uh, there's like a passage in the book that I feel like kind of gets to the heart of how I picture Southernness at its best. And it's like Alex is looking at his sister, June, who to me is kind of like I poured everything I love about the South into one character, which is she's very generous and open and welcoming and just loves everyone. But at the same time, is very tenacious and unapologetic. And that's kind of what it all comes down to for me is like there's a lot of a lot of things that people love, a lot of things that people hate about the South. And a lot of this book was just exploring that for me, especially with, you know, having this Democratic president from Texas. It, it kind of all sparked from when I was watching Wendy Davis do her filibuster at the Texas Senate, and I was watching it on TV, and I was just crying and, and having this whole emotional moment about listening to these, like, twangy Southern voices saying these incredible progressive things. So when I knew I wanted to write a book where I had a president who was a woman, I was like, you know, I could do the whole like Cape Cod Kennedy, whatever, but it's so much more interesting and so much more fun and so much more layered to me to make it sort of like a Wendy Davis-esque Texas Democrat. Because there is precedent for that in history, you know, like Jimmy Carter and, and, and people like that who rose up out of these red states as these like sort of populist, you know, folksy kind of politicians. Yeah. And it, it was just so interesting to me. And it was and I feel so protective and defensive of the South. Because I feel like at its heart, if you like to strip away some of the things that, that, you know, we've been talking about lately in politics, like what Southerness should be and what it feels like it is to me is it's this like everybody come as you are, everything goes kind of mentality of like laid back, like whatever, and, and hospitality and open doors and big kitchens overflowing with food. And so that's kind of the heart of what I was trying to get at with the book. Yeah, I, I love that. And I love like fighting the good fight for like making the idea of like Southerness specifically in fiction to be something more than it's been concerned with, you know, beyond the Southern Gothic, beyond um, this, this hankering for like civil war nostalgia. I think that's great. Yeah. Uh, 
Well, the book, uh, reading it just on the first page of the novel, when you're describing this secret spot on the roof of the White House, I really felt grounded as a reader in this world. Like you had convinced me already um, <laughs> that I was there and this was really happening. I was wondering what the research was like for you in trying to ground your readers in the White House or in the lives of first children or with the history of the royal family. What was attractive to me about wanting to do this story was that I was fascinated with these super high-profile worlds where we see everything that they do and we see nothing that they do. Yeah. You know, everything's happening behind closed doors and yet every single eye is on them. And so I wanted to kind of play inside of that world, but still have it feel really real and grounded and like these problems had stakes that you could relate to and that you could have your feet on the floor in that room and feel it. So it was a lot of research, and a lot of it was, well, I'm going to make Alex, my protagonist, this huge history nerd, so he knows every in and out of the White House, and he's, you know, he's basically, like, giving you a little mini tour every scene that he's in. Like, for them, this is just, like, the house that they live in, yeah. you know? So Alex knowing that house, like, the back of his hand, I feel like kind of makes it feel like it's your own house that you, you know, maybe it's your parents' house now, and it's a little weird, but you grew up in it, and you know it. And there's all these, like, marks on the wall and the things that you remember are always going to be there. So it was a lot of whitehousemuseum.org, <laughs> which is, like, I'm pretty sure just an unofficial website made by history nerds, um, <laughs> where you can just go room by room. And, like, they have pictures of the rooms, like, throughout history when they were built, who lived in them, how they were used. So I used a lot of that on the royal side. I spent hours going through the royal collections because they pull like for their personal like their personal rooms in the palaces they live in they pull pieces out of the royal collections mm. to hang on the walls and, and decorate with and i learned that from looking up old pictures of princess diana in the kensington palace and so i was pouring through the online archives like for hours to find like one offhand joke about like there's a painting called a woman at her toilet that's hanging in the book in the in like Kensington Palace. It's like one offhand joke yeah. that took me an hour and a half of like, where's the funniest painting title that I can find? <laughs> There's so many people have been obsessed with these these worlds for years and years and years. And so there's a lot online. There's a lot in books. I read an extremely dry Carl Bernstein, Hillary Clinton biography that had a lot of details about life in the first family and the White House. But it was fun. I'm a huge nerd about that kind of stuff. So I had a great time. It didn't feel like work to me. Well, that's good. It sounds like it's a lot of fun, actually. Going to like whitehouse.org, you know, and seeing all these rooms or quote unquote, seeing all these rooms. Is there one in particular now that you'd like to visit more than any other? Oh, my God. I obviously like love to go check out the East and West bedrooms, which I think are on the it's like it's weird because there's a ground floor and it's first, second, third. So I think they're on the second floor, but like from the outside, it's the third floor. But that's like where Alex and June have their rooms in the book. And throughout history, I mean, like the Kennedy's kids stayed in there. And before that, it was like like way when it was built, it was like the Marquise de Lafayette was in there with presumably his alligator. You know, <laughs> that to me would be such a cool place to visit because there are certain rooms. I've, you know, I've done the White House tour. I've been in the Red Room. That's why I like chose to set a scene in the red room because it's one of the few rooms in the entire white house I've actually been inside, yeah. you know? Um, so yeah, that's the one that's like, it's such a big part of the book and I've never set foot there and I would love to see it. Oh, cool. To kind of pivot, Alex, uh, your protagonist and, and Henry are kind of the center of the book and their relationship. 
I was wondering about your process of presenting queerness on the page and if like there's a long history of stereotyping queer characters, making them caricatures. Yeah. Um, did you ever feel any pressure to be like, I have to get this right. I have to present them this way. Oh, completely. For me, it was like, I felt a lot of pressure from myself to, I didn't want to do anything that felt like reductive or felt, you know, cheap or fake or, or inauthentic. Because like on a personal level, as a queer person, for me, it was super important to, to have it feel really organic and really real and really relatable to other queer people on the page. And then to people who weren't queer people who are reading it, for them to read this and be like, wow, this is, you know, still relatable to me because these are real people and this is like real feelings, you know. And, yeah. and the hope is that someone learns something from it. That's why I, I, I spent a lot of effort wanting it to feel rooted in like the context of queer history and like what this would mean if it actually happened. Yeah. And so that's, that's why you're getting into like when they're sending emails to each other and they're pulling excerpts from queer love letters throughout history, it's kind of framing it inside this bigger idea of none of this happens in a vacuum. And that to me was really important. Like, it was a big part of the whole picture of making it feel really rooted and real and and important and not just like, like it is fun and it is frothy and tropey and cute and escapist because that's what rom-coms are. But at the same time, it's like, I'm going to sneak in all of this history and you're going to read it. So it was all a balance to me about like wanting to give queer people a happy ending because that is not something that we could see in mainstream media a lot. And then also at the same time, wanting it to feel not niche. Like yeah. I wanted it to be like when I when I sold this and I talked to my my editor about it, it was like I don't want to sell this. Like this doesn't need to be on like a niche shelf. This is a romantic comedy. I want it to be on the same shelf as every other romantic comedy. Like it would. I want it to be like you look stupid if it's not on that shelf yeah. in your bookstore with all the other romantic comedies. Yeah. And so yeah. So it was this line of like I want it to feel real. I want it to feel authentic. I want it to feel rooted in queerness and queer history. And at the same time, I want it to like break out and show that like queer love can be, you know, mainstream successful. Yeah, no, I think that that's beautiful. And I love those those portions of the emails because it's like you're taking what's normally the subtext of like older novels or older historical mm -hmm. figures and making that the text. And I think that's really significant. Mm, thank you. To kind of to kind of go on to, to something a bit more personal, uh, you recently wrote a, a beautiful article for Bookish.com about discovering and, and embracing your bisexuality and how that mm -hmm. came to influence your writing of Alex. I was wondering if, you know, the process and the time you spent working on Alex's character and going through that journey, if that affected at all your own understanding of queerness or how you understand it personally or how you understand yourself. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like on a bigger scale, I think that for a lot of writers, every act of writing is like self-therapy, yeah. you know? I mean, there are sides of Alex and there are sides of Henry that are different sides of myself. And, like, if you want to get really narcissistic about it, you could say this is about, like, a self-love journey of, like, me reconciling those two sides of myself with each other. Yeah, there's there was so much that when I was writing, I was like, wow, like, I've never put this into words for myself before. And I'm putting it into words for him. And it's like... I, this is the most essentially I've ever been ever to, been able to explain myself to anyone. And it's kind of crazy that it's going to be like in a book that anyone in the world can read. <laughs> um, but yeah, it really does. It did like in a lot of ways force me to kind of 
like dig stuff out that I knew, but like hadn't verbalized or hadn't fully like articulated about myself. So it was, it was definitely like a whole journey with him. And like, as I feel so personally connected to that character because I feel like we went through stuff together. Yeah, no, I think that's super important. Um, speaking of like, kind of like doing this in a public manner, I've been following your Twitter and I saw, you know, the, <laughs> the crowd at the Austin event last night. Um, yeah. How are you managing kind of this transition to like, quote unquote, public persona? It's crazy. It's it's completely crazy. Uh, it's wild. People have been incredible. People, I think I like kind of present myself as a pretty open person and I write really personal stuff. Yeah. And so people feel really comfortable like talking to me and approaching me, which is great. And it's also like, whoa, <laughs> what's happening? Definitely been, I mean, I still see myself as the same person I was two weeks ago or five months ago yeah. or three years ago. Like, I mean, I'm still sleeping on an air mattress right now in my friend's <laughs> apartment in Austin. You know, I'm not staying at the Ace Hotel. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, that kind of stuff keeps you humble, man. Like, like I still got heartburn. <laughs> yeah, right? It's, it's grounding uh, you. Yeah, I, I, I got barbecue heartburn right now. Which, like, maybe I should revoke my Southern card for that. But, yeah, I mean, honestly, that kind of stuff, like, I still get the same friends I had before. It's just about taking a step back sometimes and, like, checking in with yourself. And doing the same stuff that you always did and not getting to use a very Southern expression too big for your britches. Yeah. <laughs> and, and just, it's, it's, it's incredible. The response has been so wonderful and so overwhelming and so positive. And sometimes I literally just delete Twitter from my phone yeah. because it's like, <laughs> it's, you know, like it's just need to be normal for a minute. And I still see myself as normal. And I'm just like, I've been incredibly lucky. Like I, I hit list this week that's crazy. But like people think that your life like radically changes mm -hmm. like on a day to day basis. And like, like, like most people, people who don't really know anything about authors. And no, for me, it's like, I still gotta, I, I still gotta pay for my Uber. I still gotta um, sleep on the floor and sleep on the couch when I'm on tour because <laughs> it's expensive to tour. <laughs> yes. Um, flying Southwest, you know? Yeah, no, <laughs> like, no, right. Yeah. yeah. Dealing with the heartburn, you know, it's, it's human. It's, it's there. Yeah, yeah. It's all like, it's all very real still. So, um, just trying to keep my head on straight and, 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 uh, my mom still, you know, came to a couple tour shops and like embarrassed me. So that kept me really <laughs> humble. Yeah. So, yeah. It's been good. Okay. Well, th that's good. Grounding yourself, keeping yourself there. That, that's great. Um, yeah. you had mentioned something earlier about normally queer stories do not get like the happy ending treatment and, you know, and it, it's so right. Like one of those tropes is just like always there's going to be this tragic ending and that's in like so much of media, so many books, so many TV series. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the questions I really wanted to ask you and, and I enjoy asking other authors is, are there any character or plot tropes that you despise and to follow that up, are there any that you absolutely love? Well, like on a bigger scale of like media in general, like obviously like what you just mentioned, like the barrier gaze trope that mm -hmm. came up, that comes up a lot. As soon as like a queer character finds love or finds happiness, uh, like honestly, I think it's cheap in general to resolve a character's arc by just rewarding them with death. Yeah. I feel like that happens a lot in genre fiction. And it to me, it's boring. Like, I want to see somebody, you know, move upstate and, like, take up knitting, you know? <laughs> um, like, that, to me, is so refreshing. So, yeah, I, I, I just, death in fiction to me as, like, the ultimate resolution to a character arc 
I feel is kind of cheap and kind of done. Yeah. And I would love to see people do different stuff, especially in genre fiction. In terms of tropes I love, um, I mean, there I am like a huge rom-com scholar. Yeah. And I've loved rom-coms my whole life. And there's so many tropes of rom-coms. And some of them are terrible and some of them are great. And I, like, I used all my favorites in this book. Yeah. I used the whole gratuitous karaoke moment. That's, <laughs> like, everybody's singing for no reason. Like, that's in there. Yeah. I used, like, two hot people hate each other, but now they're trapped in a small space. And it's like, oh, no, you're hot and close to me? <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> I use, you know, like enemies to lovers. It's like huge trope that I love. I love a hate to love. It's so much fun. I love like really just biting banter that's like simmering with sexual tension. It's so fun. Yeah. So those are some of my faves for sure. Oh, I think that that's lovely. That, that's a good good selection right there. I love the karaoke trope now. That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> yeah. Our, our time is sadly coming at an end. I, I've really enjoyed talking to you, but to kind of wrap us up, I know you've hinted at on Twitter that you're working on your next book, or at least thinking about it. And yeah. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, if you're if you're willing to. Yeah, so I can't be too specific because uh, nothing's been announced yet. Yeah. But I can tell you the basic premise, which is Robert Whale Blue is technically a new adult rom-com. So yeah. it's people are very skeptical about that being a genre, but it is. <laughs> so my second one is another new, like queer new adult rom-com. So uh, this one's like on a much smaller scale. It's like set in New York City and it's about two girls. And one of them is this very lost quarter-life crisis having millennial girl who is sort of a reformed, retired girl detective from her past. And she kind of falls for this girl who is on her train commute every day, like on the subway. And then the twist is that the girl on the subway is actually kind of displaced in time Mm -hmm. from the 1970s. So she's sort of, it's like Kate and Leopold, if Kate was like that girl, and then Leopold, instead of Hugh Jackman, was like a hot 1970s bush lesbian Um, (laughs) yeah so it's fun it's really fun it's a lot of uh, it's it's another like sneaky history treat and it's there's a lot of drag queens and broke people in flatbush and all of that good stuff so it's a good time all right that that sounds great i'm excited to to, i hope that the working on that goes well that's great yeah thank you well, Casey, thank you so much for, for taking some time to speak with me, and, and good luck on the rest of your book tour. Yeah, of course. Thanks for thinking of me. It was great.